Psalm 79, 11 says this. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like a prisoner? Uh, maybe even a, as a Christian, you know in Christ you are free, but you just don't feel free. Maybe you feel trapped in a, in a prison of self-loathing or addiction or doubt a prison of unfortunate circumstances, a prison of a bad marriage or a, or a thankless job or a prison of your own apathy or your own limitations or maybe even some in a literal prison. Do you sometimes feel like you are just appointed to die and you best get on with it? You don't feel like your life is worth much and there's not much worth looking forward to. There's a team of people that I email every week um, to pray specifically for all those who will be teaching at all of our summit campuses. I'm so thankful for these men and women. And every week I send them an email with the passage that everyone is teaching on and which campus each person is at. And then if any of the speakers have any specific prayer requests, I send those along as well. And this week, I included in my email how I'm, uh, how I'm feeling down a little bit. And I can't really pinpoint why uh, I just am. I feel an ambivalent weight around me. And, and I'm seeing everything right now through the cloud of uh, sadness. Um, so uh, hence the very uplifting intro. Uh, so that's what we're in for tonight and today. Uh, it feels like uh, I'm in a thick cloud uh, that I just, I just can't see that far in front of me. And it feels somewhat like a prison. In the last battle, the final book of the classic Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, Lucy asks Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, the lion of Judah, uh, which by the way, I, uh, I had a waitress the other day whose name was Aslan, so way cooler parents than me. I wish I could name a kid Aslan. Uh, but Lucy asks Aslan to help some dwarfs. But these dwarfs are already inside Narnia, which at this point represents heaven. They've already arrived, but they think they're still back on earth in a stable. They refuse to see the beauty of Narnia. Lucy says, Aslan, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarfs? And Aslan replies, dearest Lucy, I will show you both what I can and cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and he gave a long growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarves said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do that with a machine of some kind. Don't take notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear they could not taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things one might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. Another said he had got a bit of an old turnip. And a third said he had found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. 
But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching. They went on quarreling until in a few minutes, there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they'd sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in prison. And so afraid of being taken in, they cannot be taken out. But come, children, I have other work to do. Sometimes I wonder how often I place myself in a prison of my own making uh, for various reasons, maybe for punishment, for a failure or atonement for a sin, or maybe simply because I just don't want to be taken in, because I don't want to believe that there really is something better. Grace frees us from prisons we often find ourselves in whether it's a prison of our own making, a prison inside our own mind, a prison of crippling doubt. The reason I talk about grace so much, apart from my absolute belief that everything in this book, everything in the Bible is about grace, besides that, the reason I talk about grace so much is I struggle so much with accepting it. I believe it is what the Bible says, but I struggle to accept it's really true, that it really is all about grace. And in that way, I'm not unlike the people Jesus told the parable that we're gonna look at together today. It's a parable found in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and I'm gonna start reading in the first verse. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, now, first of all, who's Jesus speaking to? In order for us to know who Jesus is talking to, who he's telling this story to, we have to actually go back about midway into chapter 21. And we find out that the them, the them is the chief priest. It's the scribes, it's the Pharisees, it's the religious insiders. And these religious insiders have come to Jesus and they've asked him a question. They say, by whose authority have you been doing all these things that you've been doing? Essentially, these very religious types are saying to Jesus, we've earned our place. We've earned the right to speak and teach. We've worked hard for our positions. We've done all these things. Who are you? Who are you to be able to do all the things that you've been doing? And Jesus responds by telling them some stories. And one of the stories is this of the wedding banquet. So verse two, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and, des and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is God's word. So in response to these religious insiders asking Jesus by what authority he's able to do the things that he does, Jesus tells them a story that shows them the kingdom of God is all about grace. And here's how you get it. You respond to the invitation, you allow yourself to be clothed, and you celebrate. That's it. You respond to the invitation, you allow yourself to be clothed, and you celebrate. The story starts with an invitation. Well, in fact, the invitation occurred before the story. Jesus says there's a king and he's throwing a huge banquet for his son's wedding and he sends his servants out to remind the people who have already been invited. It's time to get dressed. It's time to get ready. But those who have been invited already choose not to come. But do you know who Jesus is talking about? You know who the, the, the people who've already been invited, who, who that represents? The religious insiders, the people he's talking to. And many of us, many people who go to church, we are religious insiders. We've been invited. So we have to ask the question, have we shown up? Many of us can sit in church for a long time and we can serve and do all kinds of good works and, and, and we can do all this stuff without ever really coming to the party. We can be like the older brother in the prodigal son story, working really hard to be really good, but we've never actually celebrated. This story shows us that the kingdom of God is a party. God wills above all else to celebrate. God wills above all else to celebrate. So have you come to the party or have you stayed out in the field toiling away? Those already invited in this story didn't come. Why? Why wouldn't they come? Well, in verse 5, it tells us they saw what was offered. They saw that there was this party, this wedding banquet, this feast that was being given. But to them, it wasn't enough. They'd rather go back to their field. They'd rather go back to their business. Whatever was being offered to them wasn't as good in their own minds as what they already had. So they were indifferent about the party. And then verse 6 takes a pretty violent turn. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Whoa, Jesus, that elevated very quickly. And, and I, the whole, I've been trying to think, like, why, why did he go from, like, some guys just were like, ah, I'm not interested, I'm going to go back to work, and then other guys, like, killed them. Um, I think that Jesus is trying to make the point that underneath our indifference, there is a hostility. Think about that. Most of our indifference, if you feel indifferent towards something, oftentimes it's masking hostility towards it. And what Jesus is saying here is pretty unsettling. He's saying a person can on the outside say, hey, I'm coming, I'm in, I believe all this, I maybe even make a public declaration of faith, but inside there is absolutely no feasting. 
only toiling. Instead of celebration, there's a constant working, a constant earning. Why? Because if I've earned it, nobody can tell me how I should live. If I've earned it, nobody can tell me how I should live. But the invitation is grace. It's like the line from the old hymn, if you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. Religious insiders often want to get better on their own to get good enough to deserve a party. But if you come into the feast, if you accept the invitation, you have to admit it's all about grace. That you don't deserve an invitation any more than anyone else does. So my fellow religious insiders, have you come to the feast? Have you accepted the invitation? Jesus in the story says, you can, you can have said you're coming and then never show up. Have you shown up? So there was a group that was already invited before the story begins that, that don't show up. And then there's a second group that's invited that does show up. And I wanna make a little side point here. Um, the kingdom of God is built by invitation only. You don't come without first being invited. And if you're a Christian, you know this. You know that there's no way, there's no way that you came up with this on your own. It's like the, the, the line from the other old hymn that we sing here a lot. Tis not, tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hast thou not chosen me? And yes, my little Calvinistic heart leaps for joy every time we sing that. But, but it's not about a particular doctrine that makes my heart sing when I think about that. It's about knowing that we have a God who invites us, who seeks us in our shame and in our sin, who makes the first move, who wants us even when we're unwantable. I don't want to ever think that I found God. I don't want to ever think that because if I was the one out doing the searching, then how can I ever be sure that he really wanted to be found by me? Do you see how insecure you would be if it not for the invitation? You show up at a party that you're not invited to, you're going to be nervous the whole time about being found out. But if you have that invitation, you know you were wanted. So in this story, some are invited and they don't show up and, and some are invited and they do show up, but nobody shows up without first being invited. There's a great comfort in this. Invitation shows us that we're wanted. But there's also a warning here. I know there are quite a few uh, of you who come to Summit uh, because you're trying to figure out what you think about this Christianity thing. Uh, maybe you had a bad church experience in the past or, or maybe you've never been to church, but, but you're kind of, you've heard some things or you got some friends that are Christians and you're trying to figure it out. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you're here. And if, you, if you're exploring what Christianity is and you want to explore it in a, in a small group environment, uh, we have these groups called starting point groups uh, that are designed specifically for, for people, no matter what they believe, no matter where they're at and figuring this out, to come and, and just be able to ask questions about it. And we've got some starting soon. So find me after or find Dan in, in the lobby. Um, we, we would love to have you be a part of that. But, but here's what I want to say to you. We always want this to be a place where you can come and you can sit in the back and you can wrestle and think and, and ask questions. 
We want you to take as long as you need, but absolutely no longer than is necessary. And my guess is, if you are here, you're feeling some sort of tug, like a spiritual tug. That's the invitation. That's him. That's not just yesterday's Taco Bell. That's, that's him. That's the invitation. That's him saying, you're wanted. And listen, we have a very patient God who doesn't force us to come without understanding or who doesn't want, you know, he, he wants us to count the cost, but also don't tarry. What are you waiting for? When someone says, I've got a meal ready, which is the image here, you don't say, I'll come in a month. It won't be there in a month. The invitation is for now. You can only come to a banquet when a banquet is being thrown. St. Augustine said something to the effect, Lord, you know, make me yours, make me pure, uh, but wait until after I have some fun with this pretty girl. Um, it wasn't exactly like that, but it was kind of like that. Um, I, I, my, my, my interpretation. But if you read the confessions, it's in there. Uh, but here's the real problem with waiting. It's not so much that the banquet won't be there when you decide to show up. Because the kingdom of God is an eternal feast. But it's what waiting to respond does to our hearts that's so damaging. To say, I'm not coming until I'm ready to come is essentially acting as if there is no God and there is no invitation. If there is a real God and you're feeling a tug, you're feeling the invitation, you have to come when he calls. If there is a God and he created the universe and he created you and he sees you down to the completely deepest, darkest secret and he says to you, I want to be with you, I want to celebrate with you, you don't say, maybe later. You respond. You show up. So there's a great comfort and invitation, but there's also a warning. Don't wait. In order to get grace to be part of the kingdom of God, you have to respond to the invitation. And second, you gotta get clothed. So Jesus says the first people invited didn't come. So what does the king do? Well, he tells his servants, all right, let's change our strategy. Let's, let's go out in the streets and invite everybody. And in fact, he, he says very specifically, go out to the street corners. Now, commentators say this is an actual term for a place in which the major thoroughfares would, would enter the city limits. See, every major city would have one major road coming into the city, and from a street corner in the city, many roads would spread throughout the city. So essentially, it was the place that everyone had to come through. It was a place where you saw everyone, rich, poor, every ethnicity, every demographic. Everyone had to pass through these city corners. So the king says... Let's go there. Let's go to the place where everyone is. And so he sends his servants out, and instead of just bringing the religious insiders in, he invites everyone. Now, this doesn't just mean that, that this party is, is a huge, diverse party with, with people of all different socioeconomic backgrounds and, and ethnically different and different demographics. It's even diverse morally. It says explicitly in verse 10, the bad as well as the good. Think about that for a second. At first, it looks like the kingdom of God is built by the religious insiders, by the morally good. In order to get an invitation, you have to be a person of certain religious standing, but now everyone's invited. 
both good and bad, religious and irreligious. Jesus told parables to disrupt thinking. This is a disruptive way to think. Everyone is invited. The king doesn't care if the guest smells like the pigs or smoke or brings a date who does. Like he does, he does everyone is included. He doesn't make any stipulations about them at all. They do not have to get their acts together in order to be worthy to be a part of the party any more than the prodigal son had to guarantee he would never run away again before getting the fatted calf. There was no expectation. They didn't have to do anything. He doesn't just invite the good and snub the bad. He invites all while we were still sinners. But he simply asked that we trust the invitation. So what came with the invitation? New clothes. In verse 11, there's a twist to the story. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Now, there's two good reasons why someone would show up without wedding clothes. One is you didn't have time to go home and get them. Or two, you just, you didn't own any. You don't own any wedding clothes. But Jesus says this man was speechless. He didn't offer either of those responses. Why? Because the invitation came with new clothes. Everyone at this party came off the streets. No one had proper clothing. Also, many at this party would have been the poorest of the poor, so they didn't have wedding clothes. Therefore, the king must have provided the wedding garments at his own expense. They came with the invitation. This man couldn't respond to the king because the clothes he needed were right there. He just chose not to take them. You very uh, rarely will find my three-year-old daughter, Prynne, um, not in a princess dress. And in many days, it is multiple princess dresses, lots of costume changes. Um, but don't ever call her by anything but her name, Pren. So, you, you know, if she's wearing Ariel, you don't say, oh, what, well, how pretty you look, Ariel, or, you know, hello, Queen Elsa, because she will emphatically and very exasperated say, I'm Pren, and she says it like that. She, like, gets this, like, groaner, I'm Pren. Like, she does not want to be called anything but her own name. So, of course, I, um, ignoring Proverbs 22, 6, which says, fathers, do not exasperate your children, do it every time, because I like to hear her do that. But um, why wouldn't this man put on wedding clothes? Why wouldn't he do it? They were right there. Why wouldn't you do it? I wonder if this man didn't want to put on wedding clothes because he, he thought it would change who he was. And if he thought that, he'd be right. It would. Jesus is saying in this parable, he's looking at these religious insiders and he's telling them, I will take anybody. Your record, your past, all of it. I want you here, but I will change you. Like Anne Lamont says, grace meets you where you are, but it won't leave you where it found you. And that change starts with these new clothes. But here's the best part. You don't have to pay for them. We just have to accept them. They've been paid for at someone else's expense. Like the invitation, the clothes are completely by grace. We come into the feast not because we're properly clothed, but by admitting that we're not properly clothed and allowing the king to clothe us. It's all grace. 
I spent a lot of time this week trying to put myself in this man's shoes and trying to come up with all the reasons why I might choose not to put on the clothes. But then I thought, what if this man in this story isn't meant to represent us, any of us? What if he's not a representative of us? As Jesus is telling this story, he's the son of the king. It's his party. That's what he's talking about. It's pointing to his wedding feast with his bride. But in order to get his bride, us, there, Jesus knows he has to become the man. Jesus wasn't looking at anyone while he's telling this story and saying, hey, don't be this guy. Because Jesus knew he was gonna be that guy. It was him that would show up before a holy God in filthy rags. Not because he, because he didn't take the beautiful garments at the door, it's because he left them there for us. Verse 13 says, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Remember, Jesus is telling the story. Imagine what he was thinking about as he said that. He knew he would be the one thrown out. He knew that it would be his hands and feet nailed down. He knew that the darkness of the human heart, the evil that has ruined everything, would be put upon him. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, to be our sin, so that in him, what? We could have the righteousness of God, so that you and I could pick up those royal garments, those wedding clothes. Jesus Christ hung on the cross in our filthy rags, in our sin, so that we could be clothed in his beauty, his righteousness. Have you allowed yourself to be clothed by him? That's the whole point of the story. Jesus was the man thrown out so that we could be the ones accepted to the party. He's looking at the religious insiders and he's saying to them, don't miss this because this is the point. This is why I have the authority to do the things that I've done because it's all about me being this man for you. There's a pastor, he's passed away now. He's a, he was an Episcopal priest um, who I really love. His name's Robert Farah Capone. And uh, he said this about this parable. He said, we like the guest may cease to care about our acceptance, but God has never had a change of heart about having offered us acceptance in the first place. Accordingly, while this parable certainly says that God, like the king, will tell those who refuse to trust him to go to hell, hell nevertheless remains radically unnecessary. There will never be any reasons from God's point of view for anyone to end up there, precisely because God and Jesus has made his grace and not our track record the sole basis of salvation." The invitation is grace. The clothing is grace. So all that's left is for us to party. Y'all know I love Charles Spurgeon and uh, he had an incredible sermon on this parable and he ended by saying this, you always want beggars at your feast. The prim and proper ladies sit there like this and in comes the food and they say, hmm, but the beggars cheer for every dish. The beggars cheer 
for every dish. Jesus in this parable is telling us that the kingdom of God is not kept from us because of our sin. It's not. Jesus took care of that part. But the kingdom is kept from us because of our pride, our damnable good works. Most of us aren't amazed with every good thing in our life. Most of us don't cheer for every dish because most of us feel like we deserve it or we deserve better. When my life isn't going the way I want, how often do I say, God, come on, what, what's going on here? Especially when I look around and I see someone who I think is worse than I think I am. And, and, I, and I think, well, what, what, is, this just, is this a test? Do you want me to just try harder? Do I need to get better? What, what, what do I need to do to make this better? I'll work harder. But that never leads to a party. In Christ, our whole life is already a feast. It's already a party. Let me finish with this. It's a, it's a true story um, that took place during the end of World War II. There was a, a Highland Scot named Murdo McDonnell. Again, parents cooler than me. Uh, uh, but during World War II, uh, Murdo was captured and, and placed into a prisoner of war camp. And he was captured along with, a, with another Scot uh, who happened to be a chaplain. And these two Scots were put on two different sides of, of a fence. And on one side of the fence was where all the American captives were held. And on the other side, all the British captives were held. But both these Scots acted as chaplains to the men. And because of that, once a day, they were allowed to go to the fence and have a conversation with one another. But they had to have a conversation uh, in front, uh, in the presence of the, the German guards. So, so the guards knew English, and they knew French, and of course they knew German. And so uh, these two uh, Scots uh, decided they would speak in Gaelic, which is the, the native tongue of Scotland guards didn't have any idea what they were saying. Well, it turned out that one of the Americans had a homemade shortwave radio that the Germans didn't know about. And so, uh, so every day, Murdo, who was on the side with the Americans, he would bring the news from America um, to, to the fence, and, and he would speak it in Gaelic so the, so the guards wouldn't know what was going on. And one day, he got to go to the fence and say in Gaelic, Germany surrendered. The war is over but the German guards didn't know about it yet because the communication had all broken down. It was, it was a couple days before they would get word of this. And so, 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 so this chaplain got word that, that the, the Germany had surrendered, that the war was over. So he went back to tell uh, the men and, and the British barracks. And, uh, and the next thing you knew, you could hear just an incredible cheer go up. And the German guards had no idea what was going on. They were so confused. They didn't, they, wh why is there cheering? And Murdo would say, for the next three days, the guards had no idea the war was over. We were still prisoners in a sense, but we walked around and acted like we were at a party. We didn't complain about the food anymore. We didn't hate the guards anymore. In fact, we smiled at them. Truth is, we felt sorry for them. Yes, they were pointing guns at us. Yes, we were still in prison, but we were free. And on the fourth day after getting the news, they woke up to find the guards all gone and the doors open. And in recounting this event, Murdo McDonald said, we were liberated by news before we were liberated by the guards. The gospel means good news. 
in Christ, we are free. No matter what our circumstances, no matter what our record, good or bad, we're at the party. And unlike the dwarfs in Narnia who couldn't see the truth, so they lived like prisoners in the middle of paradise, these soldiers who were actually in prison saw the truth and that made them live as free men. Do you know you're free? You know you're free if you've responded to the invitation. You've shown up. You know you're free if you've allowed yourself to be clothed by Christ and him alone. And you know you're free when you start cheering for every dish. The cloud hasn't lifted for me. I still feel the weight. But the truth helps. In Christ, I'm free. And it really is all about grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, for this story you you told us this story that tells us that it really, it really is all grace. That there, is, that there is a joy that we can experience no matter our circumstances because we've been invited by you to the feast. And Father, I don't know where each person in this room is at as far as uh, believing you, trusting you, but you do. And you know what their heart needs to hear in order to completely surrender to you. So Father, I ask that you would continue to pursue each of our hearts. That even those of us who have surrendered to you a long time ago would feel pursued by you in a way that makes, you, that makes us trust you more. And we pray all of this in the one uh, who became uh, the man thrown out of the party for us. Your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.